Welcome to this uh, City View podcast and videocast in conjunction with the Institute for Continuous Improvement in Public Services. Uh, Tonight we're going to look at uh, some of the key issues that have arisen around everyone in getting rough sleepers off the streets, one of the most dramatic elements of the early days of covid Uh, We're not only going to look at it as an issue about homelessness, rough sleeping and helping people in need, but we're going to take a step back as well and look at what lessons there are uh, for the management of public services. What can we learn from the way that everyone stepped up to make this happen and then can we preserve it? My name's Neil Stewart. I'm the editorial director of City View. And today I'm joined by Alex Bax, who is the chief executive officer of Pathway, the charity for homelessness and health, who've made a great uh, contribution to the understanding of the complexity of homelessness and the health impacts on people. I'm joined by John Glenton, who's the Executive Director of Care and Support for the Riverside Group, a big, very big housing association. Uh, But he's also the chair of the National Housing Federation's Homelessness Steering Group and was been up to his neck in discussions. And along with them is Debbie Simpson, the Chief Executive of the Institute for Continuous Improvement in Public Services. And she's going to reflect on what she hears from our two speakers uh, this evening. So homelessness and rough sleeping have been a permanent feature and discussion, uh, peaking every Christmas as crisis and other charities go into action to help people off the streets and protect them and increasingly take the opportunity to try and help them get back on their feet, tackle their health, mental health, economic and housing problems. Um, But it was a bit of a revolving door over the years, the idea that people on the streets are always with us. And yet at the start of the COVID Uh, pandemic in March of last year, uh, led by the efforts of uh, Louise Casey, soon to be elevated to the House of Lords. Um, A remarkable exercise took place in public management with extraordinary determination. Resources were mobilised, hotels were uh, uh, gathered together, staff and other teams were put together and literally within a week or two weeks, Uh, a very large number in thousands of people were swept off the streets into single isolated accommodation. And for many of them, for the first time, they began to get some of the services and some of the contact that they needed and benefited from. And it's been an extraordinary story. So our first contribution this evening is from Alex Bax. Alex is the chief exec of the homelessness health charity Pathway, And he's been at the centre and was at the centre of a lot of the arguments about getting everyone in adopted as a policy, not just in England, but in Scotland, and also had some influence overseas in Australia. Uh, Alex, over to you. Tell us about your experience of everyone in and how things might go forward. Thank you, Neil. Um, Yes, it's been an interesting year, hasn't it? We were just talking about how many waves we, we reckon we have and I think from our perspective, we think we've had two and a half waves of, of pandemic, but we're definitely now coming out of the second wave of coronavirus infection. Um, as you said, Neil, we've been involved from the start or before the start. I remember in January, we, Pathways offices are actually, we borrow office space from University College Hospital and sit on a floor with, with a team of infectious disease experts. So back in January, we were hearing discussion initially of a new virus emerging. Um, I guess our, our real story in relation to coronavirus and the epidemic starts partly, in fact, with you, Neil, and our conference almost this time last year. So by the time we were, run, we were running our eighth International Homeless and Inclusion Health Symposium last spring, planned for March. Um, and as the event became closer, the evidence around the, the, the huge risk that coronavirus was going to impose was, was rising rapidly up the agenda. Um, fortunately, one of my trustees is Professor Andrew Hayward from UCL, who's a member of NerveTag, and we were able the week before our conference last year to check with Andrew to say, do we go ahead bringing 350 health 
people together in the London hotel. He he said, yes, there probably won't be an infection in the room this week, but next week we would have to cancel it. So, so we went ahead. And in fact, Neil, you remember, we turned over the closing plenary session to, uh, to focus on coronavirus because it was coming. And by that point, Andrew had produced a presentation of the best available evidence from China largely about what the virus was doing and its infectivity, um, its attack rate, the mortality to expect. And Al Story, who leads the London Find and Treat Mobile Tuberculosis Service, presented a plan which we'd crafted that weekend, or he'd largely crafted, which was test triage cohort care. Um, and that was presented at our conference on that day. And I'll, I'll come back to some of the lessons about actually having that event and having a network in the room on that day, which I think played a huge role in, in enabling that plan to land and to, to, to move incredibly fast. I think, Neil, you managed to get those videos online the following day. Um, and I think they were viewed very extensively, very rapidly. And it helped us as a charity and other partners make the case. The epidemiology was so frightening, bluntly. Um, the level of death expected was so severe. It allowed us very rapidly to get into discussions. And I suppose to scare the hell out of colleagues, particularly in MHCLG, who were slightly wondering what to do and what it meant, I think. Um, so we moved very fast. And I recall by the following Friday being in a meeting with the Great London Authority, um, again with, I think we were on version four of the plan by then. And I think that following week, everyone in was announced. Um, and it felt like a kind of a snowball had suddenly rolled. Plainly, there were other people having influence from the housing direction at the same time. Um, so what we suddenly saw was, yes, the national lockdown ordered um, a very easy argument to make in a way that if the government is ordering people to stay at home, th plainly the government must surely do something for people who have no home. Otherwise it's effectively, presumably putting them in an unlawful position. Um, and that argument was won pretty rapidly. I think Louise Casey did play a real role there in getting the money bluntly <laughs> and giving the Secretary of State some confidence to say that he could do it. And then we saw the everyone in order issued to local government. And we had the experience of, of yes, lots of my NHS colleagues and we, we work with specialist homeless hospital teams. We help to promote and create specialist teams in the NHS. Suddenly an incredible upsurge of mobilization of colleagues across all sectors, rushing around to try and do the best that we could across this amazing endeavor moving at real pace with the GLA in London, procuring hotel rooms hand over fist and procuring colleagues from the third sector to, to stand up staffing teams overnight, as it were, St Mungo's, um, SHP, colleagues from Riverside, just being asked almost over the weekend to, can you bring another group of people to staff this next Travelodge with another 100 people in it? I remember one of my nursing colleagues being in a hotel just east of the city Actually, I think she worked 70 days straight through the first wave and on, phoning me to say, I've got one thermometer, Alex, and I've got 120 people in this hotel. <laughs> um, can you help? So we, so we also experienced some gra grave dysfunction in the sense of the health services ability to mobilize because she was, she was stepping way outside her standard operating procedures and was in a hotel. She wasn't supposed to be there but yet there she was um, supporting the local third sector provider to make that a safer place. Um, so an amazing mobilization suddenly. In London, we were fortunate to, to get Médecins Sans Frontières to mobilize a nursing team to staff up and open very rapidly, a specialist COVID hotel. So we were able, the plan was that we would, the street team supported by medical staff were going to cohort and identify anyone who was thought to be infected or showing symptoms would move to a COVID hotel to keep the infection away from everybody else. And within the other hotels, some efforts to try and cohort the populations to keep more clinically vulnerable people together and less clinically vulnerable people together, a standard way to respond to an infectious disease. So absolutely astonishing. I was just saying before, and Neil, we now see the data that in wave one, very, very low levels of infection in the end in the homeless population in London and nationally. 
um, this really worked, giving people their own self-contained accommodation um, without barriers, without assessment, without question. So no thresholds applied was incredibly helpful, incredibly in terms of avoiding disease and coronavirus infection. But actually what we also see, saw was incredible engagement with services in people who had often never engaged before. So we saw a real shift. We, would, we, we think this is to do with um, almost the psychology of what was offered, that, that it was without strings. In a way, it was a bit, a bit like a, a rapid, huge field-scale trial of housing first. So there was no threshold. Everybody could come in. That was the name on the tin. And then we were going to work with you. And we were going to try and mobilize whatever, whatever was needed. So um, in London, again, SLAM were rapidly mobilized, a citywide um, substance misuse first tier referral service, which had never been done before. The game was set up in, a, in like five days, proving that procurement doesn't necessarily have to be in charge and proving that commissioning, for, for a period within the NHS, it certainly felt that commissioners had nothing to do, which some of my clinical colleagues sometimes wonder whether they, what role they have ever. Um, of course, the money has to be managed, but suddenly things were, were happening because they seemed like the right or the safe thing to do. And decisions were escalated through the government's kind of gold command systems. Decisions were made very rapidly and things moved fast. Um, not everywhere and not, not everything was perfect. Um, Looking across the country, we were aware that, that that plan that we'd launched at the conference was being used elsewhere. We had the strange experience as a charity of quite enjoyed this. At one point, there's a letter to local governments from, from, from CLG, which actually referenced the plan on our website because we'd never actually, although throughout this, we were lobbying the government to adopt that health-led plan. They never actually did. So they were referencing it back to us which was fine, but, but always slightly odd that it was never in the end formally adopted by government. Um, what we see now, I'm afraid in the second wave, particularly in London, is that infections have happened very significantly in the homeless population, particularly in the hostel sector, um, because although the government says everyone in has been continued, the volume of accommodation is simply not there. Um, so projects have become more overcrowded and, and it turns out that a particularly the new variant of COVID is actually quite infectious. It's an airborne virus. And if you have people in crowded buildings, they will spread the virus. And that's what we're seeing. Because at the same time, there are some hotels still operating in London and less crowded projects where we're seeing virtually no or no infections. So, so we've, we've proved what is, what is the case. For those of us who've been working in homelessness for a long time and looking at the interactions between human health and multiple exclusion at homelessness, this is not a new phenomenon. This is what infectious disease agents do. They find their niche, and usually in our populations, they find their niche amongst poor people. Tuberculosis is, would be a case in point. It's interesting that, that which again, we observe routinely that, that states seem to mobilize when a disease is a threat to everybody. But when it's just a threat to our population, that seems to be not so much of a problem. Um, and again, the issue of tuberculosis um, has, has remained unresolved in the London homeless population for 20 years, really. And we've never been able to get the degree of attention on it that we could suddenly get to coronavirus because, because tuberculosis tends to remain a disease of extreme poverty. And we, are, as, a, as a society, seem quite happy with that. So there's a snapshot of the, of the year of coronavirus from our perspective. Some, some reflections on what we've learned about why... I mean, I've, some things didn't go so well, but broadly, we, we would certainly say that wave one mobilization was absolutely astonishing in terms of, as Neil said, more or less eliminating a street population in London, not completely, but more or less, and doing it in a week or two. Again, we found that there were far more people coming into the hotels than were identified in the street count. And that seemed to indicate, as many of us thought, that there were far more intensely vulnerably housed people hidden in our society than are identified routinely in, in the, the regular ways local government collect the figures. But um, the endeavor was a great success, I think, at that point and showed that we can change things very, very rapidly under pressure and that these, these impediments to action, particularly the more bureaucratic ones, 
do seem to be impediments to action. Um, so some other, some other kind of more stepped back reflections on that. What I, I wonder whether John would agree with this, but, but we saw the barriers between health, housing and social care really come down. We saw incredibly high collaboration, high trust between local government in particular and its third sector partners. We saw from our perspective, NHS people suddenly, I mean, we, we come from an NHS perspective, if you like, suddenly connecting in ways that they never had before with both the third sector and housing and being present and engaged and collaborating, finding what new ways to do things. Um, we saw incredible innovation, that SLAM uh, project I mentioned was just one example, but all sorts of things have happened very rapidly, a huge shift. And we've done some work on this in primary care, total triage, digital by default was being rolled out almost instantly into primary care. We did some work to, partly to express our concerns as to what that would mean for homeless patients and other, other patients, for example, without a smartphone or technology. But also some of our patients we know really, really like those kinds of interactions. So, so beginning to see those wholesale changes which have been discussed for 10 years suddenly happen in a matter of weeks. Absolutely amazing. I think one of the things we were thinking about why this change was possible at the practical level, that mobilization, certainly from our NHS perspective, maybe I would say this, wouldn't I? But we think that 10 years of work forming really a sector which didn't exist before, an inclusion health sector within the NHS. So our, our Faculty for Homeless Inclusion Health now has 1,600 people on our mailing list. As I said, 350 of them coming to a conference last March launching a plan, we had, a, we had an infrastructure, we had a set of people in many towns and cities across the UK who knew their local CCG chair, who knew their local authority, and were able to say, guys, we're the inclusion health people, we have a plan, a well-evidenced, robust, epidemiologically sound plan, and we can bring it to you in Brighton or in Bristol or in Leeds or in Manchester, and we have some network capacity into the NHS so we can mobilize the testing, we can mobilize the PPE. And that infrastructure, the, the prior existence of our network, we think has really, really helped mobilize a much better response than we would have seen without that. Um, I think we've also seen, and we've seen that in the, in the scientific world, the incredible pace at which people are producing preprints and scientific reviews. And that's been hugely powerful for us. And within our own sector, my fabulous colleagues at UCL have been putting out data very rapidly from the testing, from the epidemiology, but also from mental health. We've seen early papers about, about that positive impact of the hotels, for example, but quite robust science emerging very quickly. We also found in the first wave that at that point, government was listening to the science um, and we could get conversations happening rapidly around the fact that, that we were dealing with a very dangerous new virus. And that, that was leading to, to real mobilization. Um, and the last thing I would mention was, was something about motivation. There was something, almost a statement of the obvious, but, but the arrival of a, of a very dangerous new virus, particularly in the world of healthcare, was a huge motivator for people to act. People were very, people were very scared, people very, very worried about their patients. We were very, very worried about the extreme risk that so many people experiencing homelessness face because of their deteriorated health, because of their compromised health status and their high risk they faced of disease and death. And that was a real motivator for, for change. Um, and we saw astonishing collaborative behaviors come saw some people bumping into each other because they were so motivated. And we had some interesting episodes of people pitching up with really quite unhelpful stuff, but they were trying to help, which was, which was fine, but sometimes a distraction. But that motivation within the staff teams to, to really go fast, which was, which was the case within the hospital sector and other bits of the NHS too, amazing kind of endeavor, I think was felt, I would say, across the homeless sector into the third sector as well. Um, of course, that kind of volition is hard to maintain, isn't it? And it begins over time to begin to become harder. And I think that's perhaps wave two has become much more challenging in all kinds of ways. But 
that first flush of enthusiasm. Sorry. That's what happened on. <laughs> um, that first flush of enthusiasm was just lost. Well, not, not entirely lost, but, has, but is, it's hard for people to keep going at that degree. As I said, one of my nurses worked 70 days straight in the first wave without a break and, and actually had coronavirus during that period, um, but kept going. And now I think, well, people in the NHS are tired. The next wave has been very brutal. It's been, we've still managed to keep a lot of things going and it's not been a disaster, but um, I think that motivation is, is not there so much. And looking to the future, we've not seen such clarity of simple leadership from the government in wave two. The messages have got a bit more, I think they would say nuance, nuanced or targeted, but a little less clear perhaps. We've seen less money and as we look into the future now, um, the vaccines again, interesting. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening and the vaccines are, are mobilizing well, which is good. Um, I hear rumors amongst some homeless people now saying we, they, they, we think they just want to vaccinate us so they can shut the hotels and chuck us back out on the street. Back to that TB. So now we can just be homeless again because they've got a, a fix for this disease. And of course, we're, we're rather against that position. Beginning to try and make some some noise in that space. We have our conference next week, which Neil is kindly helping us with, and we'll be putting some of those points to the junior housing minister next in, in the week after next. So I, I thought I'd stop there. Though that's my quick canter through the last twelve months, I suppose. Okay, Alex, thanks very much. I mean, it is interesting that um, the snapshot that's taken every year as to how many homelessness people there are on the streets, rough sleeping, always comes out with a figure about four and a half to 5,000. And yet, by the time we got to September, uh, the minister was saying that uh, under everyone in, they'd housed 29,000 people. Um, so it's just a small glimpse of the scale of the problem. So let's take a look now at how uh, one part of the housing world was able to step up and contribute. Alex mentioned how all the kind of different services from housing, local government and the NHS came together. And our next speaker, John Glenton, is the executive director of care and support for the Riverside Group, a very big housing association, uh, has 57,000 properties. And within that, uh, a significant number, three and a half thousand, I think, that are for uh, single and homeless accommodation. But beyond that, uh, he also was very active in supporting hotels and following through on everyone in. And so, John, uh, over to you. Let's just hear about your experience and what lessons you've learned and what reflections you have on that period. John Glenton, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Neil, and, and good afternoon. Uh, so I just want to start by setting the scene, giving a little bit of context first. So back in 2019, uh, there was an estimated 4,300 people uh, sleeping rough. That was a 141% increase from 2010, although a slight improvement from 2018. And there was a further 35,000 people staying in hotels uh, at that time. So back in 2019, uh, Riverside, we commissioned a piece of research through uh, York University, which comes on to my next slide, which is what we, what we term now as a a traumatised system, because what we'd seen through this piece of research was almost a perfect storm in terms of policies and the impact of different policies had made on the increase in homelessness. So there'd been a, a £1 billion reduction in spend on homelessness services. Now that was a reduction in, in units, in bed spaces, but also in community-based uh, floating support. And in addition to that, we'd also seen significant cuts in other complementary services, such as drug and alcohol treatment services, access to mental health services. All of these things were having an impact on, on, on the homeless uh, sector. We knew that there were, it was well publicised that we were living through a national shortage of housing. There'd been uh, changes to welfare benefits, such as the introduction of universal credit, Plans to introduce the law called housing allowance on housing benefit had also had a significant impact on the development of new homelessness services. So if you put all those things together, you were seeing what we would call a perfect storm. Now, by 2019, we'd also began to see a greater focus and more funding from government. And they'd recognised that they needed to do more. 
So we were seeing what we'd call some green shoots with the introduction of housing first and housing first pilots and just a greater focus on, on homelessness. So then that takes me up to where we really want to talk about, which was uh, COVID-19. So uh, I, at the end of March last year, you, many of you will know this, the local, the government wrote, wrote to local authorities and asked them to urgently accommodate every homeless person with adequate facilities to enable social distancing and the hygiene requirements to reduce uh, and manage infection control. All of this was directly in response to the pandemic. So we, thought, we saw more than 5,000 rough sleepers accommodated in hotels and other short-term accommodation uh, services that were, that were mobilised. But there was a further 10,000 people back in that period of time, end of March, beginning of April, who were also accessing these services. So who were they? Where did they all come from? So um, we were involved in working in hotels in London, Manchester and Liverpool. And, and from our experience, we thought there was three key groups so there was the long-term rough sleepers, people who'd been uh, using services for some time on, and, and, and slept on the streets for some time. But then there was new people, new people who were accessing this service, people who'd been perhaps sofa surfing or staying with family and due to the pressures of the pandemic, their place had broken down, the place where they lived, or people who'd had accommodation tied to where they worked. So there was a whole host of new people. And then the third key group was people with no recourse to public funds. So, so what did we do? Well, well, um, we worked with local authorities and we worked in a, in a, with our outreach workers, contacting people on the street, making access to them, also accepting referrals. What was so different was, uh, and, and Alex referred to this, barriers were removed completely. It was about access to accommodation. So transport was arranged. There was no need for lengthy assessments or waiting lists. Everything was uh, put together in a very rapid way. Uh, so um, when people arrived at the hotels, they found a room waiting for them. They found meals provided. Uh, they found co cooperation between agencies like we'd never seen before. So healthcare professionals would be also on site. Prescriptions were arranged. Treatment services were on site for drugs and alcohol and, and mental health services. So all the immediate needs were, were put together. The way the hotels operated had hotel staff managing the housing side. There was security staff on site maintaining a safe and secure environment. That meant that our support staff were free to actually support people, to start having conversations about where they wanted to be, where they wanted to move to, what they wanted out of their life uh, in the future. I think what, what really strikes me was the cooperation, you know, GPs attending hotels uh, and all services just working together with a common goal. Uh, and that was to support people and to help manage uh, the risks uh, affected all of us through the pandemic. And it was a rapid response. So what were some of the key findings? What were some of the key things that we, 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 we saw? Uh, well, I think that we, um, we, we saw some uh, great uh, working together. Sorry, just need to go back one. I've just skipped a slide. So what we thought was after the initial fantastic response, it was amazing but it was incredibly fragile because many of the contracts for these services were very short term. Most of them were due to come to, the end, to, come to an end in, at the end of June. So we got together as a group of providers through the NAPFED, you know, through the, the group I chair, but also working with other sector providers, as you can see many of them named there. And we got together and we said, we need to lobby the government. We need to lobby the government together. We'll be stronger with one voice. If we're all saying the government needs to do some of the same things, then that's got to be stronger than us all chipping away differently. So we said to the government and we wrote to Dame Louise Casey and we spoke to housing ministers and, and collectively as a group, saying that this is a real opportunity and the government needs to seize this opportunity and make sure that no one has given no option other than to return to the streets. So we need more housing, we need more support, and we need a, a, a plan for each of those individuals who are staying in those hotels to be resettled into long-term, permanent and appropriate accommodation. We got a good response, so the government did extend uh, many of the contracts in, in the hotels. The government did then announce the Next Steps accommodation programme where there was additional funding further further £433 million allocated over four years to provide more accommodation and more support. Um, so then what we found was um, 
we had some we had some sense of security. We knew who was going to be working in the hotels longer. So then we conducted a short piece of research, and that's where we come on to the, some of the findings that we uh, that we were able to uh, establish through this research. Now we talked to the hotel staff. Uh, the researchers talked to the hotel staff. They talked to the security staff. They talked to our staff, uh, but very importantly, they talked to the customers. Now, uh, we in the Manchester Hotel that we worked in, uh, we've today housed over 600 people in that hotel and over 75%, around 75% have been successfully moved on into uh, long-term suitable housing. So what was the key? You know, what, what really worked? Well, some of these things are on the screen now. So access to medication, access to support to manage uh, addictions, enabled people to make the most of the environment. Now, some previous um, research and some previous discussions had said that housing a group of people in one site was going to be, you know, fraught with problems. And um, we didn't see that as a challenge. It didn't, it didn't present in the same way as perhaps you'd expect with 45 homeless people staying in one location. We found that, the research found that um, limiting the time people spent outside, which of course was part of the government's plan to manage the pandemic, reduced opportunities for negative or damaging uh, interactions and behaviours around the, around the vicinity of, of where the hotel was. Residents told us that they really um, embraced the daily routine of living in a hotel, feeling safe, were able to enjoy a sense of community, we felt that bringing together partners really galvanised efforts and, and everyone really worked together with cooperation. And there wasn't the usual uh, sometimes interagency conflict. Uh, and also the fact that there was there was a removal of any commissioning. Uh, so you weren't seen as competition anymore. That also made a, a significant uh, difference. The rapid access. I think that's one of the key things that customers told us that, you know, there wasn't a need for a lengthy assessment. Or there was no red tape. It was quick. Access was arranged. Uh, uh, transport was arranged, and it, uh, uh, needs were addressed almost immediately. And then high quality uh, accommodation. You know, having your own shower. One of our customers told us that she had ten showers in the first twenty-four hours of staying in the hotel. <laughs> so you know, made a real uh, a real difference. But having that uh, quality environment. Uh, was key, a key part of, 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 of the success of, of this service. So then um, moving on to um, how might this help us in the future? How might this make a difference to, to, the, to, the, way we, uh, to the way we deliver homeless services in the future? Well, I think there's some obvious ones. I think um, good quality accommodation with the facilities that I've described, the hotels that have provided, removing barriers, removing the, you know, the needs for lengthy assessments, for waiting lists, for referral panels, all of these things that uh, make a big difference to being able to strike and engage with a person when they're ready to engage. Uh, uh, so we thought that, that we, that's absolutely something that we need to continue. The rapid response, the interagency working, the healthcare, the advice, the support, the access to meals, all the kind of basic needs really made a big difference. Uh, and, and the fact that um, there was a real sense of safety and security within the environment that was maintained. It, the, the service was well staffed, it was well resourced, and it created a real sense of community among partners, the, our staff and other, other professionals, but very much amongst the customers. So, so what did the customers tell us? So in the interviews we conducted, the customers told us that they felt that their health had improved their mental health was better. Their overall feeling of well-being had increased. The nutrition had improved. They felt safe, secure, and protected. Now, for someone who's lived on, on the streets, that's a massive, massive difference. And they felt more positive about the future. So we welcome uh, the focus and the action from government during the pandemic. We are concerned that the response in the, in the second wave has not been as strong as, as the initial wave, and we are seeing further increases right now in, in people roof sleeping. But moving forward, we need a clear strategy and a strong, stable uh, funding regime to, to support homeless services. And today, many of you have seen that there's been an announcement around the roof sleep account for 2020. There's been a 37% drop 
which is which is really good progress. However, I do feel if the count had been conducted back in April or May, it would have been significant. The improvement would have been significantly more than it was because we are seeing more people uh, back on the street uh, uh, right now. So, so uh, thank you for listening. I'm happy to come back to Neil uh, and then take questions later. Thanks. Okay, John, uh, thanks very much. Um, well, between our two presenters, a fascinating story of complex soft skills being applied, coming together, uh, not just a question of a roof over their head. In fact, both the speakers spoke at great length about all the other things that were likely to make a difference. And those kinds of soft, smart skills um, the only other thing I'll make as an observation before I ask Debbie to come in is that I have to say commissioning and procurement structures uh, are not having a good pandemic, um, whether it's some of the headline stuff that's going on about the early procurement, but also in this in these micro economies at local level. Uh, so I think that will be one of the questions that comes out. So can I introduce uh, Debbie Simpson, who's the chief exec of the Institute for Continuous Improvement, in public services. And Debbie, what's your reflections on what you've heard and uh, perhaps connect it to any other wider lessons or debates that are going on about what the pandemic has uh, forced us to address? Debbie, over to you. Thanks, Neil. Well, I think to me that was um, really, really interesting to listen to Alex and John. And I took an awful lot from that. In fact, I mean, change usually happens and uh, um, re real adversity is where you see the inspirational change such as wars and things like that and in a way Covid is a war as the Prime Minister has told us over the months and I think what we've seen come out of this in terms of what Alex and John have been talking about is absolute classic agile transformation it's textbook stuff um, and when you look through the components of what they're talking about, I, I made a note of them all as we went along. So we saw a, a strong agreement which gave him impetus um, to the work that they were looking to do. And it was extremely customer focused, which is always the way um, transformational change should be. Uh, they had a common goal and they spoke with one voice. They had a clear plan. So everybody knew what they were trying to achieve and they could articulate that. Um, we saw the creation of specialised cross-functional teams. So they tapped into their existing links and they hooked up across um, specialisms and across organisations. And they built trust between them very rapidly to make something happen. And then we also heard about how they removed the barriers um, and they were empowered to do so. So they, they didn't go through traditional procurement routes, for example. And then we heard about their innovation so they were making um, decisions outside of the norm and using different approaches, such as uh, collecting data from new sources instead of going through the traditional routes. So they achieved what they need to a lot faster through that sort of innovation. And then we heard how they removed all the non-value adding activity. So they cut through the usual red tape and the approvals and the unnecessary change protocols that a lot of um, change programs tend to follow and as a result of all that they've achieved something quite remarkable they've achieved rapid transformation that made such a huge difference to the lives of others and also by the sounds of it had some unintended benefits as well in terms of the nutritional side of things and the well-being and, and the um of, of the individuals who took advantage of all all of this um opportunity that had been made available to them so as I say, it's it's sort of absolutely textbook change done in the most agile manner that I've heard about for a long time. And I think there's lessons in there that we can all take from that um, about how we we manage change moving forward. So so thank you for sharing that with us. Okay, um, thank you, Debbie. That's that was quite interesting. Um, Debbie, could you pick? from history, other examples of agile transformation outside of warfare? Can you think of any other occasions when public services have moved in that fashion? Do you know, I, it's an interesting question and I don't think I can think of an example where they've moved quite as fast as they've ever moved in COVID. 
Yeah. Um, there is there is something about COVID that has really driven these new ways of working. And this is one of the most dramatic examples I've heard of. Um, I, I, there'll be more to come out of the health service without a shadow of a doubt. Um, but this is this has really brought it to light. But no, I can't think of an example where they've, they've made it happen so fast. I think what happens a lot in public sector is they tend to get, um, even in change, they tend to get bound up in process. Um, and they will follow a process to the nth degree rather than thinking what is the smartest way of getting to the end goal. Okay. Uh, well, if you're watching online and you want to ask uh, questions to Alex or John, uh, just pop some of the questions into the chat and I'll uh, take some of those uh, forward. Um, Alex, I was very interested in your point about the fact that, um, although you had to pull your plan together with Al's story and others at very short notice, it had... 10 years of work behind it, preparing the complexity and building up a community of uh, uh, in the inclusion healthcare world who could go and speak to local authorities, speak to GPs, uh, speak. How important do you think that long-term preparation was? I, I think it's been hugely important that it's, we are, in another world, I've done a certain amount of work with the military thinking about kind of service leadership. And they always talk about how I mean, they, they, they would say that they, they practice 99% of the time are in action 1% of the time. And the NHS is in action 99% of the time and has about 1% of the time to practice. But um, the fact that we've spent 10 years building a network has created a set of relationships across our little professional discipline across the country, which have become very, so there are lots of collaborative relationships between different kinds of clinicians or different kinds of professionals who could pick up the phone and talk to each other, which is huge value in these times, as Debbie said, to quickly be able to speak to a top infectious disease expert when you're dealing with an infectious disease is actually quite helpful. At the same time in localities, so what would be an example? So, so Bradford, we helped create a, a pathway team in Bradford back in 2013. Um, with a fabulous local provider, Bevan Healthcare, who are a specialist community interest company. Um, they, by the time the pandemic arose, despite what John said about that, he's absolutely right about the wider context of austerity having torn, torn things down, but in a little bubble in Bradford, a really amazing health service and health response had been created and they'd created their own step-down pathway. They'd created street-based outreach service they'd created their own health led they'd moved their building into the inner city to be right next to the red light district they were doing some in incredible work but crucially i think in covid times they'd also partly with our support been very visibly commissioned and were in relation to the local ccg and the local authority and they knew the housing director and they were very plugged in already to those city relationships so as this was arriving I know they were able literally to come back from our conference to say, guys, we've got a good plan here and we're quite confident that we can do it with you. We know how to mobilize. And then, and then the government leadership coming with the money for the emergency accommodation, just, it was just much easier to mobilize because those relationships were in place. I know in some other places, the other one, the NHS, some colleagues have been fascinated to watch was a hotel in Shrewsbury. I don't know whether colleagues have seen this, but uh, an amazing hotelier who just, uh, he just by himself said, well, I've shut my hotel. I'm opening it to the street population. And again, actually amazing, just community action in action, if you like, transformational in terms of the relationships around that and the, his, his personal learning journey about what people on the street are really like. But actually around him, some health service people very quickly other bits of, of the local administrative bureaucracy mobilized around that amazing local leadership, if you like. Um, I think he had a few more battles to fight because there was no mature, there's no one obvious to go to immediately. Um, so I think that that the network which we have built, yes, I think was really important. And John, you were, I mean, you're inside a huge organization. You were already coping with supporting, what, three and a half thousand other um, places. Um, you yourself had a huge management and your team had a huge management job uh, building social distancing and pandemic uh, measures. Just describe how you managed to overcome internal obstacles, competing priorities to get the mobilization and the buy-in 
from your organisation? Because again, that's an interesting uh, story. Well, in, in a way, it's similar to, to what, what Debbie was describing. Um, we just needed to do it. So we just worked in a different way. I think we were able to get access to technology like this that we weren't using before. You know, historically, we traveled all over the country having meetings, et cetera, with project plans. No, we had a meeting every day and said, what do we need to do next? Because it was about, obviously, the response within the uh, short-term services through the Everyone In campaign. But you're absolutely right. You know, we had 58, 57,000 homes. But within care and support, we have 3,500 customers who are homeless or have been homeless, 5,000 older customers living in retirement living, and then another 1,500 who've got support needs. So it's about making sure that our care and support staff, and we've got 1,200 employees working in care and support, have the right advice, have the right PPE, you know, all the kind of things that people were hearing on the news. We were struggling but managing to keep our head above water to make sure our staff were safe. But then every evening when we were watching the... the um, the government's announcement, we were then working overnight to turn that into guidance for our staff so they knew uh, what to do next, what did this new announcement mean for them. Regular communication with our customers, making sure that we did really practical things for our customers. So every single customer had a pandemic plan, ranging from you know food, medication, money. What, what did they need to get through this, 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 this pandemic? So we worked really hard to make sure that people were safe during the pandemic and they had the right level of information. Even things like providing people who didn't have a mobile phone with a mobile phone so we could keep in contact with them. So it was, it was very much about the practical needs, making sure that people had what they needed to get through it. But also we changed a lot of our work to work um, over the telephone or in meetings like this so that we could deal with things like isolation and loneliness. So we were talking to people, we were supporting people remotely, and that was really important for us. So we worked, that's so really sorry, that's my dog and I can't stop her. Uh, so, so we worked really hard to make sure people were practically safe, had the right information they had, but we worked rapidly. You know, we work overnight, turn things over, um, you know, and forget some of the usual change programs that Debbie was talking about, where you, you know, you need a scoping document, all those kind of things. It was the government's announced this, we need a policy on that. And that's what we do. We also needed to react. So we had some other agencies we were working with making decisions we didn't agree with. So we had some treatment agencies saying we're going to send a month's supply of methadone and you've got to look after it. We're not equipped to do that. We can't do that. So it was about um, having your red lines, but being cooperative and working together and explaining what we could do and what we couldn't do. But, but you know, exactly as Debbie described, we worked rapidly. And what we've seen as an organisation is we've proved we can do it. And we want to keep some of those things. We want to keep some of those, you know, standard style meetings where you have half an hour, you've got to make decisions and you do it. Now, you both mentioned this question of uh, trust and how trust works right across organisations that would normally be separate, Ian silos. Uh, they would be operating processes of procurement and uh, commissioning, which, you know, they're not about mistrust, but they are about the presumption that without good, slow, steady governance, there'll be uh, misplacing of resources or mistakes. Um, how do you think that kind of trust can be maintained? Or was it really down to uh, trusted relationships between individuals? Or was it a wider culture? Alex, what's your thoughts on that trust issue? I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think there's something in the homeless sector about the kind of intrinsic motivation which the issue brings to the to the services and the people who tend to work in it. So there's always been a, a degree of, particularly, in, I think, in the third sector of people broadly facing in the same direction. What the pandemic brought was was rapid kind of closening of those relationships, particularly with local government and with NHS colleagues saying, well, actually, we are really all on the same side for the moment and we can't be having these arguments about whose, whose job it is or whose budget we've just got to get through quickly. I think, I think you're right. I think some of that bureaucracy is reasserting itself. And I think some of those I mean, budgets are tight and, and the money questions come back in and these allocative decisions start having to be made. And, and some of those procurement processes or assessments are partly about allocating funds in the end, aren't they? What's, who's going to, to get through but so I fear that the trust will begin to, 
to fade away again a bit. I think I think you can build it within a team or within an organization, but these boundaries, I think they begin to chip away at that level of trust. And how we keep that going, I think, is is really quite a hard question, well, particularly if the government doesn't, particularly if we face, as it were, a, a wave of austerity, which might be a response. Um, and I think it will force people back into their defended silos because that's certainly what we saw in the last, as John said, the last 10 years, as well as cuts, forced services and organisations to retrench and kind of defend their lines because that's all they felt they could do. So that trust question was from Chris Atkinson and uh, Caroline Schulman says, going on to the second one, so how do we stop a return to business as usual with all the normal barriers going up? John, what's your thoughts on that? And then Debbie, you as well. John, first. So, so, so I think what this has shown us is something that we know from previous research, that when you have a shared vision and purpose, that is really powerful. So having a shared vision and purpose is something we need to maintain. So through local forums, whether it's about homelessness or healthcare, it's about what's our shared vision and purpose and how can we work together to deliver what we see as the desired outcomes. And then within that, we need to just have some sensible breakdown to say, actually, do we really need that in included? Do we need that extra bit of bureaucracy? Do we need that extra process? Do we need a, another reason why we, we delay in helping someone? Do we need to have a ref referral panel meeting once a week, for example, when you've got empty bed spaces in hostels and people sleeping in doorways? So it's those kind of things. Let's be clear at a local level and at a national level, what's our shared vision and purpose? And then how do we deliver that? And then rather than looking at creating barriers, we find solutions. So confidentiality is often used as a challenge. Confidentiality can be worked through with information sharing agreements and understanding that we don't all need to know everything. So I think it's often it's about personalities and the way we can work together to find solutions. But for me, it's really important to have a shared vision and purpose. And that's what we had during the pandemic. And Debbie, what we saw in this was um, people who felt people in charge of different services feeling that uh, they had the right to act on their own executive authority. Um, how much is that trust issue something that we need to think about in public services? That if we put people in charge, we can trust them to take executive action and that sometimes that means that they, they may circumvent some of the longer processes if there's a better outcome. Is that a dilemma that we're going to have to wrestle with? I think it's a huge dilemma and it has been as long as I can ever remember. Um, it's about letting go. It's about trusting your workforce. It's about redefining what it means to be a leader and a manager to some extent, because you have to let go of the traditional controls that you have around your workforce and turn into more of a mentor and a coach of the employees. Um, you have to be prepared to um, work in an uncertain environment. So if things do go wrong, you sort of, you're prepared to go with that and learn from what the mistakes to get better next time. So it's a huge challenge, I think, and it, it is um, something that needs to be addressed. And it's a skill, it's a behaviour that needs to be learnt by managers and the leadership. Um, I, th I think people need to, to really sit back at now, having gone through what we've gone through and seen what can be done, and really challenge themselves to say, why would we go back? You know, what has worked from doing it differently? What can we take from that? And why would we do it any different way? What, what's the merit in, in taking a backward step on all of this? And that takes very brave management and very brave leadership to, to, to get to that position. And that is ultimately about individuals. And I think where I have seen the trust and the collaboration and the, the move forward in terms of ways of delivering change, it's been very much down to individuals. And when those individuals have moved on, then that impetus has gone and it has to start again from scratch almost. And that takes it back to what um, Alex and John were saying, really, about having those strong links and those strong personal connections. They are so important. I think we did. I mean, I think... Uh... Uh, Alex, you would agree that what we did see, I mean, all the people working in the homelessness sector and a lot of the health professionals and housing professionals did have a high level of uh, motivation and determination to make it work. And um, just to say that uh, Robin Johnson has said that if we want to look at uh, issues of trust and commissioning, there's some work that's been done by Toby Lowe 
in Collaborate. So, Robin, if you can just put the links to that into the chat box, we'll circulate that for everybody afterwards. But that sort of two, three-month period, Alex, um, you know, where what's your reflections back on that? I mean, you could probably draw a whole set of lists of people who just took leadership roles and acted, used executive authority, and let the processes catch up afterwards. Um, I think... I was just thinking about what Debbie was saying. I think what we saw in the health sector, you know, there's some amazing clinicians just stepping forward and leading because, because they had to. And in a way, they were just leaving the managerial bureaucracy behind them. Um, but we also, I think, again, not at all perfect, but in London, we, we certainly saw the kind of command and control rehearsed emergency planning infrastructure did mobilise and structures were built, kind of, I can't what they were all called, gold, silver, things there were routes to escalate things. And one was aware that things were being escalated pretty rapidly. Again, fairly quickly, I can think of examples of things which we were kind of desperate for or urgently asking for, which did not get resolved and which did run into um, an immovable barrier or a money problem. But yeah, so I think a lot of the leadership was coming from the front line, which I think is, as Debbie said, often in a crisis, it's the people nearest the front who were seeing it and know what can be done, whereas the, the people sat back. Certainly I felt this myself personally. I was desperate to try and keep in touch with people who were out there because I was stuck in front of my bloody computer screen, sitting at home all the time, trying to find out what was really going on became a, a key, almost a leadership task actually, because normally as a leader, sometimes you're managing by walking about, aren't you? You're trying to keep in touch with what's happening by, by visit, getting on that train, John, and going to the meeting. It's partly about going to the building and seeing how it feels. And that's suddenly from the leadership point being closed off to people who are, who are quote, just bureaucrats sat in the background. Um, and I think that's been quite a challenge. Um, John, your reflections on, on that? Oops, have you gone on mute? <laughs> yeah, I think essentially I, I agree with what's been said. I think it, it, personal analysis have a, 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 an awful lot to do with it. I think that people's attitudes to 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 work and having the confidence to to make decisions, but also having the confidence not to make every decision. So allow people to be free to empower the workforce and to be in a position where ninety percent is good enough. We don't need to check everything 100%. You know, we can, some of the stuff we were doing, it was 89%. That was good enough to, to circulate, good enough to, to, be, to be a working document, good enough to be something that could change the next day. So, you know, I, I think that moving forward, we really need to enhance some of the changes we've made to the way we work and we need to keep them going. We need to not just go back to the same way. And certainly for the organisation that, that I work for, it's unlikely we'll ever go back to the way we worked before, where we were travelling up and down the country, spending loads of time on trains, spending loads of time and resources doing that, but also sometimes, even within our own organisation, strangling ourselves with bureaucracy. So I, so I agree, it's about personality's attitude, but it's also about the culture within the organisation and the culture within the sector that we work in. Uh, Debbie, we've listened to a lot of people in the management world over the past decade talking about how organisations and institutions have to build uh, resilience. Would you agree with the proposition that what we actually saw was that the homelessness and health uh, people had built a degree of resilience that was ready uh, and was able to come together, even if it hadn't been articulated at everyone in? And do you think that kind of lessons can be used by other people to build res resilience and preparation uh, in their own organisations for the next challenges. Absolutely. I think that's what I was hearing in terms of um, mobilising their networks and that, it, that outward facing um, approach to developing the networks and knowing who's important and why and who they can pick the phone up to, as we heard. That is so important in any organisation. I think if you look inward, you'll never develop the right level of, of resilience. And um, so I think that's a big, big lesson that anybody could take and run with. Okay. 
So that'll be our message out to some of the management audiences that they should not think that uh, everyone in and the rough sleeping thing was peculiar to homelessness or to charities, that there are lessons for all organisations. Um, thank all three of you for your participation. Um, this uh, podcast and video cast will be going out uh, and is part of the preparation both for the Pathways from Homelessness uh, online conference in two weeks' time. Uh, sign up on the website. And uh, uh, spoiler alert, we've got uh, Danny Dorling with some fascinating revelations. And uh, Alex has managed to lasso a minister to come along and expand on how they're going to approach things. Um, I'd like to thank John Glenton and Debbie for their contributions and to wish everybody a good evening. This has been uh, the City View podcast uh, on the question of rough sleeping and everyone in, and uh, we look forward to seeing you at the next uh, opportunity. My name is Neil Stewart, and I'm the Editorial Director, so good evening to everyone. <laughs>